Access a new level of reliable and accurate voyage data. Predictive Fleet Analytics from Lloyd's List Intelligence saves you time, money and resource by enabling you to accurately track vessels, predict vessel movements and anticipate port congestion and delays in minutes. Predictive Fleet Analytics combines machine learning with our trusted foundational data to bring instant clarity and help you make better decisions. Our analytics will help you better predict a vessel's next move with estimated time of arrival at destination ports, estimated time to berth, estimated time of departure, and port turnaround times, all on one platform, tailored to your specific requirements. Navigate uncertainty and disruption from changing trade lanes and shifting supply chains with Predictive Fleet Analytics from Lloyd's List Intelligence. For more information and to book a trial, visit lloydslistintelligence.com or follow the link in the podcast description. We may have all started off the year hoping that this hooty threat was going to be a short-lived addition to the growing list of global trade disruptions. Sadly, we're now four weeks into the year and it's looking like this is no temporary diversion. The Red Sea risk is going to last months, not weeks. Even if, by some miracle, a magic wand is waved over the Middle East chaos, the supply chain disruption is not going to be undone quickly. And even if it was, it's only one of many interruptions to global trade right now. The UN's trade and development body, UNCTAD, this week raised profound concerns over escalating disruptions to global trade, with good reason. It pointed out that the recent attacks on ships in the Red Sea, combined with geopolitical tensions affecting shipping in the Black Sea, and of course the impact of climate change on the Panama Canal, they have all given rise to a complex crisis affecting key trade routes. We knew this, of course, but... The cumulative effect of this triple whammy of blocked trade arteries is having a pretty profound effect on global supply chains. These disruptions translate into extended cargo travel distances, escalating trade costs and a surge in greenhouse gas emissions from shipping that is now having to travel greater distances and at greater speed. The crisis is already impacting global food prices, with longer distances and higher freight rates potentially cascading into increased costs. Disruption in grain shipments from Europe to the Russian Federation and Ukraine, obviously, have already posed risk to global food security and will continue to do so, affecting consumers and lowering the prices paid to producers. Developing countries are particularly vulnerable to these disruptions. If all this is starting to sound eerily familiar, it's because we were discussing the same vulnerabilities to the global supply chain in the wake of the global pandemic. None of this is new. And that was the point at which governments and multinationals promised to address supply chain resilience. President Biden even appointed a supply chain czar. So presumably that sorted everything out. Hmm, Well, maybe not entirely. While politicians globally are fretting about how they can help industries retain access to critical products against an increasingly unstable geopolitical backdrop, the recent history of supply chains reveals an important but inconvenient truth. Namely, that when bad things happen, markets can adjust fairly well, despite the politicians. And even if they were effective in lending support, spoiler alert, they're not, planning for the worst of it is generally a case of adding cost. As many economists and academics have pointed out over many years, some of them on this podcast, 
to guarantee resilience of any supply chain, you would need to be able to first foresee what could happen to demand. And then, of course, you'd need the capacity to meet it immediately. And you'd need somehow to protect against disruptions that were not seen coming. Doubling often supply chains, decoupling, nearshoring, friendshoring, or any variation in between, all come with their own risks and vulnerabilities. The only guaranteed outcomes of which will be the rising cost of doing business and the absence of any political accountability when their interventions are inevitably proven to have resulted in very little. So, where do we stand right now? How is the market adapting amid the widespread acceptance that the current triumvirate of choke point blockers are likely not to get coughed up imminently? I've drafted in a couple of experts this week to help me make sense of it all, starting with Ryan Peterson, the founder and CEO of the digital freight forwarder Flexport. And, of course, we started where all conversations currently start, in the Red Sea. I think people are starting to realize there's not a short-term solution that's going to allow the ships to return safely through the Red Sea. The vast majority of them are going to continue to go around for the foreseeable future, which, you know, from a historical context, is not on that it's not unprecedented. The Suez Canal was closed from 1967 till 1975, I believe, um, because of, you know, slightly different, but similar. It was originating with the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and now spreading to a wider regional conflict. So I think um, the world's been here before. The world was a lot less globalized in the late 60s, early 70s. I think the container shipping revolution had just started. There wasn't as much dependency on global supply chain. So it's going to have a, probably a bigger impact. That said, um, it is kind of normalizing in the sense that, okay, we have to route around. Like a lot of what you're seeing right now where the prices of freight have gone up four to seven X or something like that is it's short term because of the chaos might be an okay word to use, but short term, the replanning of every ship of every container, um, you've got to settle into a new normal. It's also short term in the sense that we're really up against the Chinese New Year holiday right now where February 10th um, is Chinese New Year this year. So there's this um, this bubble of demand that happens every year right before Chinese New Year of companies trying to get the goods out before the factories close down for the holiday. And so we'll see there's a temporary rise in demand. At the same time, supply has been reduced, um, absorbed by the longer route around the, the Cape of Good Hope. So what happens over the next couple of weeks really towards the second half of february you'll have a much better picture of like what's the real level of demand versus supply look like in the container shipping market i think you'll see prices settle if i had to predict it would come down a little bit then but also um throughout the balance of this year you've got so many new builds coming online for container ships uh we're, we're the, the industry's um forecasting a 10 percent increase in container shipping capacity throughout 2024 and that should be more than enough to absorb you know, to fill up the supply that's been absorbed by going around the long route here. So I think you will see things just sort of settle back into a new normal. I'm not in any position to predict, you know, what happens from the, with the conflict with the Houthis and the, the, the safety of sailing through the Red Sea. I, I don't think I'm going to be the, in a position to make predictions about that. But I would say, even if you have to go around, the world will adapt, the businesses will re readjust, but it's always in the granular kind of micro nuance um, where these plans get done. So, you know, if, for example, Jordan, the country of Jordan has a has a port of Aqaba, it's on the Red Sea, and like, um, they're not getting a lot of service from container shipping or otherwise right now. Um, 
uh, Jeddah is Saudi Arabia's biggest port, not getting most of the services have stopped calling there. What does it mean for you if you're a manufacturer or you're that's your port? You know, if you we have a customer, we have a, several customers, but one in, on my radar in particular is trying to get cargo out of Jordan right now. Um, and we've been working with them on other solutions, but will they keep their factory in Jordan or do they end up moving that to a new country? So it's always in those little details where, where the decisions get made and businesses uh, have to find a way to route around. Just before we take a wider look at the implications of all this, it's worth reminding ourselves that the choke point blockers are only part of the story. The Red Sea crisis and diversions around the Cape of Good Hope are unlikely to have a material effect on the existing container ship oversupply, which in turn will see the current high freight rates normalise relatively quickly as new schedules start to settle. All of this is happening within the context of the markets. It, um, my simple math says, hey, um, it takes 20% longer to go around on average. And uh, 30% of containers of the world go through the Suez. So it's it's 20% longer for 30% of containers. That means it's a 6% reduction in world container shipping supply. I, I, I'm kind of a caveman with my math, but like, all right, six. Six percent, maybe it's ten percent, but you know, we just said, hey, there's ten percent new builds coming on, so it more or less gets you back to where you were this year, which was pretty low historical rates, um, difficult market for container shipping to make profit, um, and uh, yeah, back to kind of the way the industry's been for a long time. It's a boomer bust type of industry. It's also right now is you know I mentioned Chinese New Year being a really important kind of milestone. What happens after that? Where do prices settle? And then we go straight into contracting bid season. Um, for the, for the American market, most contracts are signed annually um, between March and May each year. And I think there's going to be a lot of reluctance on the shipper side of importers and exporters to want to sign a big contract while rates are they, – they, they're going to argue, hey, these are temporarily inflated rates. I'm not going to sign a one-year contract at these higher prices. And so it's going to be an interesting showdown of, you know, can the carriers get contracts signed while the rates are still higher? Do people hold out and – delay their contracting season. Now, in terms of implications, there's obviously a lot to look at there. But one of the questions being asked by many in the box sector right now is whether there is a risk of a semi-permanent shift to supply chains following the canal crises, plural. Will Panama Suez and the risk of industrial action see East Coast ports lose their pandemic gains as West Coast ports now look like a better bet, for example? The East Coast definitely is at risk right now because of these two canals um, putting the East Coast at a disadvantage. And ILA contract is up for renegotiation in the, um, I want to say, September of 2024, which is the East Coast Port Union. So there's a lot of uncertainty there. I think a lot of shippers are, the, the confluence of factors is going to make a lot of shippers say, hey, let's just route to the West Coast um, and pay extra for the trucking and rail. Um, I don't know how long-term those are. The, the Panama thing seems... Pretty long-term. People are talking a lot about this drought. I I got to go look into this more. You maybe help me. Uh, because I I think, I don't know. I have, it's, Google's just not that good. It's not been that easy to find out, like, what is the real rainfall per, by week for the last five, 10 years in Panama and how unusual is it right now? It does seem quite a coincidence that they just redealed, re- widened the canal. And then immediately we have these problems of it not working. You know, it seems to me there's like some engineering problem here of the, Maybe it's draining too much of the fresh water out of the lake or something. Uh, certainly, you know, is this drought like a once in a hundred year drought or once in a five year? I haven't gotten enough info on that. But if it's not once in a hundred years, then 
it was an engineering problem, not even if there is a drought, like they should have built against that when they, when they built the canal. So that one seems like it's going to be a, I don't see it just, Oh, it rains and then that gets fixed. I think that's probably an engineering problem uh, that may take a long time. If, if there's any um, financial or political will to get it done, I don't know the overall, like, are we going to start seeing more reshoring or, you know, we're already seeing that there's a huge boom of manufacturing in the United States and in Mexico uh, Mexican labor cost is now half the labor cost per hour for manufacturing as China's um, kind of an underreported fact is just how much cheaper Mexico's gotten. But shipping something from China, even at these elevated rates is cheaper than shipping it from Mexico. I mean, the trucking is just so expensive compared to um, con- compared to ocean freight that, and, and labor cost is not everything. It's like labor capability. They have the discipline, the experience, the supply chain ecosystem, component makers and stuff. So I don't know. I'm always a little skeptical of these narratives that like, oh, globalization is just going to suddenly go away. It's just so valuable to everybody to be able to ship anything anywhere. But it has really relied to a degree that's underappreciated on the U.S. Navy and our willingness to kind of fight pirates and bad actors and keep the um, keep the supply chains open for freedom of navigation that any ship can go to any other any port in the world and just trade freely without worrying about it. Um, I think we kind of took that for granted since World War II, and before that, it was the British Navy that did that. And like now, all of a sudden, you're like, well, if the Navy can't keep it open, do supply chains reorient, and how fast, and what happens? So, open question. But I, I just think if you once you get down into it you end up moving to cheaper countries, but finding out that, you know, going around the Southern tip of Africa from is still cheaper than trucking something from the middle of Mexico into, into uh, the middle of the U S. So we'll see how it plays out over the next couple of years, but I I would predict, you know, companies are always going to find a way to route to the cheapest, cheapest possible way. And they'll probably be better at doing that than we will be at predicting what they're going to do. So what about that all important question of supply chain resilience then? Well, Right now, the politicians that were hopping up and down post-pandemic, demanding that action be taken and supply chains be diversified, they're all sounding pretty sanguine about the global implications. President Biden's energy security advisor said this week that the impact of the Houthi rebel attacks on commercial ships in the Red Sea is, quote, limited. Cost pressures have been more on logistics than on energy commodities. Costs go up, but the inflationary impacts are relatively muted. Well, that's all right then. So, has government or industry learned the lessons of pandemic and somehow shored up the global supply chains in the intervening periods between crises? Have we somehow missed the big story of resilience and investment? No, I I don't think so. Resilience costs too much money. Nobody wants to do it. (laughs) Um, You know, at the end of the day, it's like sort of like you get a lot of Wall Street kind of decision making is a lot of financial engineering is taken over. MBA is looking at spreadsheets. You're like, well, I could have all this extra inventory in stock, but look how much it costs me. I don't get rewarded for that. And I'm working on my quarterly bonus and my quarterly share price. And I might not even be here next year when I need the resilience. Like, so I haven't seen a lot of evidence for it. Um, there's something inherent about business that leads to some short-term thinking cycles. Well, it doesn't have to be in business, but in the types of Wall Street driven, you know, private equity, public market companies, it's just very hard for people to have the long term view of their business and the ownership mindset. 
Uh, it's pretty rare in this world. It's, the liners are pretty interesting because they are they do tend to be family owned or state owned, and they take a longer view. For you know, sort of, I mean, it's almost a Darwinian function. Nobody, no Wall Street. It's it's tough for a Wall Street uh, public market company to um, operate in a world where you might lose money for ten years and then make a ton of money for two years and then lose ton money for ten more years. Like a Wall Street executive is not going to do that well. They might get fired during that ten year drought. Uh, whereas a family can take a longer view on things. If nation state can take a longer view, so. Now, Jan Hoffman is going to be a familiar voice to regular listeners of the podcast. He is, of course, UNCTAD's head of trade and logistics, and he was out and about this week raising profound concerns over the escalating disruptions to global trade. So I thought it would be good to get him in. Like Ryan, he's not looking at the Red Sea as an isolated incident. Those combined with geopolitical tensions affecting shipping in the Black Sea and the impact of climate change on Panama Canal, etc., etc., have all given rise to these complex crises affecting key trade routes, in his view. So the, the one thing that I find important here, and you alluded to it, this comes on top of many other things. And, well, we hope and we think that this Suez will be reopened and fully free flow in, I don't know when, but hopefully soon. The change in the Panama Canal is potentially much longer term. It's not closed, but it is also significantly down. Now, all these percentage uh, changes, um, we had lots of discussions there. Do you take a, a moving average per week, per month, or an annual, whatever? But, but the change in the Panama Canal is, is huge. If you go two years back, it's like by, by almost two-thirds the number of transits. Um, and when will we be back with more fresh water in Panama is, is really difficult to forecast. While when we will be back to fully transiting in Suez is, I hope, not a question of years. No, So in that sense... Um, I feel the, the Red Sea, of course, in the news because of the, the politics and the, the horrible and, and the war and, and the shooting at ships with seafarers on it. But for the logistics and reconfiguration, I think Panama may be just as important. No? So that is something why actually yesterday I, I started with some numbers on the Panama Canal to put it in perspective. And and then, of course, at UNCTAD, we also highlight the what is happening in the Black Sea which is still having an impact on the distances traveled. So we have three crises. All of them lead to more distances traveled. And that's something I I find important. It was also picked up by the UN News and the, these three impacts. The first one we think about is the additional uh, distance. And it takes time to build the ships. And because ship owners, investors hope that this will not be forever so who would invest in something which may be temporary so in the meantime uh, so number one we go more distance but also the price per day of shipping is also going up due to the normal demand supply so not only any ship has to pay for more days of shipping he or she also has to pay more per day of shipping and the third impact, uh, which has been less in the news, but depends on your priorities, is also important. Ships go faster and emissions are again going up. Not only, and actually depends how you calculate, but it seems that the emissions are going up above all because of the again increased speed 
not only because of the additional distance. No? So these are the three impacts coming from three crises who all come together. No? The point here is that this is all about the vulnerability of global supply chains. Now, Jan and I have spoken on numerous occasions since the global pandemic, at least a couple of times on this podcast, about what the industry and governments can do to increase supply chain resilience. There was a lot of discussion in the wake of the pandemic from our political masters stressing that resilience would be at the top of the priority list. And we've had various discussions about deglobalization, reshoring, nearshoring, and everything in between. So looking at it now and looking at the impact that these crises are having, does Jan think that anything's changed in terms of supply chain resilience? And is there anything we can do? Yeah, I, I, we, we do see that the importers and producers, logistic providers, the attempt to diversify is clearly there. Now, uh, you always wanted not to depend only on one provider for, for competition and market issues, but now it's even more important. Um, one thing which seems a bit paradoxic that leads to more volatility is that thanks to improved efficiency over the decades, um, we actually have less um, redundancy in the system. No, we have more of these called just in time or, or whatever but but there's over the years there's less redundancy in the system and that means when all of a sudden we would need more capacity we don't have it we we are already always closer to the point in the supply curve that starts going up steeply that is why whatever different freight rates you take container bulk i looked at some charts and calculated the annual variance or standard deviation. So volatility of all freight rates has been going up over the last decades, slowly with changes. And this is a result of more efficiency, but it also, well, volatility is not good. It, it's like not good for resilience. Now, there's one thing that might make us again more, puts back some redundancy in the system, if ships go slower because of um, the need to emit less, for a short period, as is happening now, they can then increase speed and somehow compensate and, and to go the longer way without totally uh, dis disturbing the supply chain. So I think, uh, but of course, in the even longer term, if ships go slower, they will also optimize the design speed. And when they then need to go faster again, they no longer can go faster. <laughs> but for the moment, I think many ships are going slower than the optimal or the design or the possible speed. And and now they, they are lucky that they can speed around South Africa. <laughs> and so I wonder what realistically can be done or whether we just have to accept that with increasing crises around climate risk and geopolitical risk and security risk, we just have to wear the fact that the supply chain is vulnerable. Yeah, I'm afraid um, that sounds about right. <laughs> There's very little we can do. Many of the specific things at a point in time, I can tell you, oh, yes, you need to have the visibility. You need to optimize, facilitate, uh, whatever, digitalize, all these things we promote that, that make an indiv individual player, an individual port or intermodal operator, yeah, more agile. but 
if this is optimized in the whole system, again, it also leads to less spare capacity. No, that same optimization. Okay, well, that is where we are going to leave it for another week. My thanks to Jan and Ryan for offering their insights this week. And of course, thank you for listening. We are going to be back next week with more of the stories shaping shipping. And while I hesitate to make promises amidst the current news agenda, which is moving at a rapid pace, the current plan is to give you a break on Red Sea analysis. And I have a very intriguing tale from the murky world of insurance investigation for you. But until then, stay safe out there. Goodbye. Goodbye.